0: The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at northsferrychurch.org. Well, uh, as we approach the text today, I want you to think about something. Uh, I want you to think about this last week. And I say that so you'll think really about last week and what you really did and not just theoretical and not about the person next to you. But I want you to think this last week. Answer these questions not out loud but privately to yourself. Last week, um, what motivated you to get out of bed? Like when you're laying in bed, and the alarm went off, and you're like, "Uh." What motivated you to get out of bed? Or on the flip side, what made it so hard for you to get out of bed? Perhaps it was a bad week. Or um, what provided you the drive to work hard? What, what provided the drive to, to do a good job, to work hard or... Conversely, what sapped your energy and made it hard for you to give it your best effort? Really, think about last week, not theoretical, but last week as you worked and as you took care of kids or you went to your office, whatever your circumstance is, what got you out of bed? What gave you the motivation to work hard? What motivated you or, or what provided you the drive or what kept you going when things got tough? Maybe you went through some tough things and where did you find your strength? What kept you going when things got tough? Or conversely, what made you want to lose hope and just quit? What what gave your life direction last week? When you got up, you set your agenda, you made your appointments, you made priorities. There's only so much time in the day, you had to choose between this and that. What what gave your life direction? How did you, what was driving that? What was behind and underneath you uh, doing what you did, where you did it, why? And what's, what gave your life direction? The answers to these questions will will indicate the things that you love, the things that you crave, the things that you desire. These are your functional gods, if you will. And, and I, I ask these questions because many times we think we're tracking right along, but we don't realize how our affections how our love has has shifted love is the deepest explanation for doing what we do if you want to know why you do what you do you need to see that what's under the deepest explanation for what you do it ultimately is you love something or you love someone what we love gives our lives meanings it gives our lives purpose it gives our lives it gives us strength it motivates us as David Pallison says in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, he says this about motives. He says, Unbelievers are wholly or completely owned by ungodly motives. Unbelievers are wholly owned by ungodly motives. True believers are often severely compromised, distracted, and divided. But grace reorients us, purifies us, and turns us back to the Lord. And so, what he's saying is that unbelievers, the distinguishing difference between believers and unbelievers is what is controlling them, what is motivating them. In other words, what they truly love that is driving them. Unbelievers are controlled completely by ungodly motives, ungodly loves, ungodly uh, desires. Believers often are compromised and divided in their heart. And so what we see John doing today is affirming them in their salvation, but then calling them back to their first love, reminding them of the grace of God, the love of God for them. And that's always the order, that God first loved us, and as we are open to understand His love for us, then we fall more deeply in love and then we live with our proper motivation, our proper love. And so that's what John is doing today. He returns to the root. And isn't that what John's been doing all along? We saw last week, he said, hey, if you want to know if you really know Him, look and see if you're keeping His commands. But we saw the reason that keeping His commands is evidence that you truly know God is because the one who truly knows God knows his loveliness, knows his faithfulness, knows his goodness, his greatness, his righteousness, his perfections, his holiness, his glory. And therefore they in turn trust him. And the natural result is obedience, keeping his commands. And so the one who knows God keeps his commands because he loves God. And so today he continues to go at the root of our lives. What is at the root of your life? What do you love the most and that's where john challenges us today that love should be the root of every christian life and the obedience and the worship is fruit of that love i'm going to ask the lord to help us this morning lord i pray that you will help us because my words are empty my words fall flat my words do not have any power to transform lives But Lord, by your spirit, you take your authoritative word, your scriptures, and you can do a powerful work in our hearts. You can open up hearts to be reminded once again and to see maybe for the first time your great love for us, that we may fall deeply in love with you and that that love of God, love of the Father will be the root of our lives that we then love you and live for you and not love the world or the things of this world. I pray for your help this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what, what does Paul do in these verses? We see Paul do two simple things. First of all, we see affirmation. In 12 through 14, Paul is going to affirm them of their faith. Give them assurance. And then after he gives them affirmation, he gives them exhortation. And this is typical in the Bible. This is the typical pattern. This is who you are. Affirmation. Therefore, this is how you should live. Indicative. This is who you are. Imperative. Command. This is how you live. Here he is saying, affirmation. You are in Christ. Therefore, Exhortation, I exhort you, live this way. Now, when we get to these verses, we see it's very strange, very challenging passage of Scripture in our minds. Listen to verses 12 through 14. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. It's a very strange passage and it's just kind of weird the way it's written in English. We just don't get it. And I think it's because it's lost in translation. I've had the great privilege of preaching in Mexico, Indonesia, in South Sudan, and I have not learned the lesson yet. Jokes do not translate. I, no matter how hard I try to tell myself, don't try a joke. It doesn't work. I'll get in that cadence where I'll say a little phrase, translator says a little phrase. I'll say a little phrase, translator and then I'll slip a joke in because I'll get comfortable. And I've had literally I had a translator go, do what? <laughs> I'll tell a joke, he'll translate, I'll sit there, crickets. Okay. That didn't work. Let's move on. And so, it's lost in translation. I think that's exactly what's going on here. It's hard for us to understand. But what we what experts say is this is a rhetorical device in Hebrew that really jerks their attention. It alerts them to John's attention, and and what he's been doing is he's been in theoretically, he's been speaking theoretically about what one, how one knows they're saved what one who says they're saved should live like, and one who says this is not probably saved. And and, and then all he says but you, children, you, young men, you, fathers, and he's using a, a type of device that lets us know this is not literal children, fathers, or young men and fathers. This is, Figurative. This is spiritual levels of maturity, including men and women, young men, young women, fathers, mothers. He's saying, "Listen, new believers, you, you, those of you who are growing believers, those those who have been walking with the Lord for many years, you're mature in the faith. Listen, I know that you know Him. I've been saying, you know, in contrast to heresies." He's had, to, been, he's had to, to make some hard sayings and say, listen, if you claim this to be in the light, but you walk in the darkness, then you're a liar. And he sees the new believer over here go, ooh. And I've been saying that if, if, if you say this, but you do this, or if you don't see the love of God in your life, then you shouldn't think that you're in God. And he sees a young man over here, whoa. And he knows what's going on in their hearts. And so he says, listen, I have to set the record straight about these false teachers that are saying and claiming that they know God, yet they don't live the way God has called them to live. And I, I have to set the record straight to them, but I want you to know I know you and I know your believer. I don't want you walking around doubting your salvation. My intent is not to cause you doubts about your salvation. I want you to know. And then he goes to them. And and if we take the two parallel sections and put them together logically, what does he say to the little children, the new believers? These are the believers they've described. He says, as those who have come to know the Father and have their sins forgiven. So he says to new believers, and perhaps we have some here that are newer in the faith, and they've been hearing these, you've been hearing these teachings that are hard to receive that challenge us to examine our life. As a new believer, I want you to know you've been forgiven of your sins. Romans 8 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you've trusted Christ, fret not. You have been forgiven. You have a heavenly father. He's no longer the judge condemning you. He is your father who has adopted you and loves you. Don't fear. If you're in Christ, you need to know these truths. And then he says to the young men, these are growing, maturing believers, and he describes them as strong, having overcome the evil one and having the Word of God abiding in them. If he says to the new believers, hey, you are in a loving, forgiving relationship with your Father in heaven, now he implies the Holy Spirit who takes the Word of God and, and infuses or it takes it and applies the Word of God into our hearts that, yes, you have overcome evil, but now as you... Hide the word of God in your heart. As the spirit brings the word of God alive in your heart, you start to walk in that victory over sin. You will see growing holiness in your life. You are strong in the Lord. I want you to be strong. I don't want you to live as weak Christians. I want you to know that you're in Christ. I want you to know that in Christ you have defeated Satan. And I want you to know you're strong as the word of God drives deep into your heart. He will make you holy. And then he says to fathers, including mothers, those who've walked with God for many years... He says both times the same phrase. You know him who has been from the beginning. You know him. You know him. You've walked for years with him. The eternal God. You know him intimately. You know the older I get. The more I, I, I notice my mind and heart shifting. I've entered a new season of life. And I think about things differently. And, and to know the eternal God is significant to know that He's eternal. He is the everlasting. He's not a fad. He's not passing. I know Him intimately. And I'm thankful for that gift of of a lifetime of walking with Him and coming to know Him. And so John is affirming them. And so when we look at this strange passage, he's providing affirmation of their salvation. He's encouraging the believers in the church at all different stages of maturity. They've been shaken by the recent events of heresy popping up and calling into question all that they were confident about. And those people have since left. And now they're here and John is saying, listen, I know you. I want you to know, I know that you know the Lord. You got this. And he summarized it. He he would say all this is, is God the Father loves you so much. He has forgiven you of your sins. He has given you victory over Satan and evil. His Spirit is applying His Word in your heart that you might learn to walk in His ways and to abide deeply in love with Jesus. You have the Father. You have the Son. And you have been given the Holy Spirit. This is who you are in Christ. Love the Lord. Don't love the world or the things that are in the world. Come back to your first love. As David Pallison said, we all need to be reaffirmed continually in God's grace. We need to remain connected to the root of God's love. We need to constantly be reminded, do you have someone in your life Who knows you well enough to talk to you like this? Do you have someone in your life to say, hey, I know you're struggling, but man, you got this. You know the Lord. He's not condemning you, you're in Christ. You see, we all are at different places, even at different times. Sometimes we're too hard on ourselves, and we need a good brother or sister in Christ who knows us well enough to say, hey, man you don't need to be doubting like this. Just keep trucking, keep walking, keep trusting the Lord. Sometimes we're too easy on ourselves. Amen. I'm good with God. Don't worry about that. It's no big deal. Hey, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, man. That's not, it's not a good idea. If you don't belong to a church, if you don't belong to this church, I plead with you, join this church. Not because of anything that we want to get out of you, but because every human being needs this kind of relationship with believers that says, I know you well enough to say, you need to relax, you're good. Or, I know you well enough to say, hey, this is not characteristic of who you are in Christ. Or maybe you are in this church, and you have yet to really Go in and connect relationally. As much as we try to make this a place about relationships and not about activity or attendance, still people can get in here and say, you know, I'm going to community group and I'm going to church. In fact, that's pretty easy. That's about three hours of my life. I checked that box. That's not what this is all about. I want, and we pray as elders, we pray that our people are connecting deeply, relationally, so that we can spur one another on in the faith. Do you have that kind of relationship with people in your life? If not, we want to be that for you. So first he affirms them, I know you and you are in the Lord and he loves you. And now having affirmed them of the love of the Father, now He exhorts them. In verses 15 through 17, this is the first commandment in the book of 1 John. He says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. This is verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So, as I said, this is the first command in the book that John gives, and he says the command, Love not the world or the things that are in the world. Now, at first, this may sound a bit strange to us. Why would John say, don't love the world? I mean, didn't John 3.16 say, For God so loved the world... That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So why would he tell us not to love the world? And last week, didn't we say that John said brotherly love is evidence that we know the love of God because it flows in us and through us so that we love others. So what does he mean, don't love the world? Well, to understand this, we have to understand in the context what the word world means and what it doesn't mean. Let's start out with what it doesn't mean. In this context, we see the world does not mean the universe and the earth and the people that God created. He's not saying anything in contradiction to what we've already described. In the Genesis account, God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. He declared it good. He declared it very good. And we know that God loves us and says, love me and love others. He's not talking about that kind of world. Instead, John is using the term world to refer to anything that is not of God. We call it worldliness. Dodd calls it the pagan way of life. We see it fleshed out in these verses. In the second part of verse 15, look what he says. John makes it clear that loving the world is, is in mutual exclusion. They, you cannot love the Father and love the world. They're so in antithesis. In verse 16, John explains the world. He says, all that is in the world, the way he's using it, is not of the Father, not from the Father, but is from the world. In other words, it's from the devil. John is very black and white. Things are either of God or not. And if they're not, they're of the devil. So you cannot love God and love the devil and the things of the devil. In John 12, Jesus assures us that the devil, though he is currently ruling over the world, that he will be cast out by God in the end. He is doomed, and this is why he says this world is passing away. The world will not ever satisfy. In John fifteen nineteen, Jesus said of believers, I chose you. Out of the world. And so believers find themselves in this strange, precarious situation. We, leave, we live in this world, yet we are not of this world. We live in a system that is built on values and attitudes and loves and cravings and situations that, and goals and motivations that are completely counter to God's will. God's values, God's attitudes, God's priorities, God's motivations, God's direction. We are different, so different that we are called aliens in our own land. And so he says, listen, do not love the world or the things in this world, but love the Father and the things of the Father. So in John's teachings, there's a clear contrast between the church and the world. And we look at what John in his letters says. Let me just paint the picture. This is the church and then the world. This is what he says about the church. The church has been chosen out of the world by faith in Jesus. The church has been forgiven by Jesus. Has overcome evil. Has the word of God dwelling richly within them. Has a loving relationship with God the Father and does the will of God knowing God and his will alone satisfies and they know they are united to the eternal God therefore they will live forever in contrast you have the world the world is not of the father the world does not love the father the world is ruled by the devil and is Working the devil's plan. The world will be removed. God will defeat the ruler of the world. He is doomed to destruction. The world is temporary and passing. The world never satisfies. What satisfies? your heart. What do you love? What drives you? What gives you hope in difficult days? Where do you go for comfort? Where do you seek refuge and strength? Where do you find strength to keep on keeping on when you want to give up? If if What is it that if it's taken from you, you just want to quit? This is what you love. Is it the father and the things of the father or is it the world and the things of the world? Believers have been saved out of this sad world. I say sad because of this. The ways of the world are described this way. The lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life in verse 16. What does that mean? The lust of the flesh. This means that the world is driven and owned and worships their appetite. What is in your heart that you crave, that you think, if I just could have this or accomplish this or achieve this, I will be satisfied. The world is driven by fleshly cravings, driven thinking that if I just get what I want, I'll be happy and satisfied or the lust of the eyes, or the things that we see that ruin contentment, that we start to think, if I just had what they have, if I just achieved what they achieved, if I just reached that destination, I will be satisfied, I will be happy, I will be at peace, I will have comfort. The world, with the boastful pride of life, worships self, and says that, If I just get what I want, I will be happy. And it leads to enslavement. Because you and I know from experience, it never satisfies. It's doomed. The world and the things of this world are passing away. The lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life takes the good gifts of God, money, career, people and perverts them into things that I need to get out of them what I think I want so I can be happy. It turns women into objects of pornography or abuse. It turns money into a God that I am enslaved to. It turns possessions, into perversions. It takes all of God's goods, good gifts and perverts them and leads us emptying, with emptiness. Because every time we reach for it, we find emptiness and we need more because the satisfaction doesn't last and this is good enough until I see I need this and then it makes me have to have more and to obtain this better retirement or this bigger home or this vacation home I've got to work harder I've got to make more I've got to get this promotion to get the praise of men because I never am satisfied and so I'm enslaved to this world and the things of the world and the, the, the things of my own fleshly desires that I create and they never, ever satisfy. But when we get back to our first love, we remember how loved we are. We know that we are righteous in his eyes and we don't desperately long for the approval of man because we have God's approval. And Being at peace with God frees us to use possessions, to use money, not for my great gain, but to see them as God's blessings, the rewards of hard work, to provide for the family and to enjoy. But then we're free to give and to find great joy in giving. Have you ever had the joy of blessing someone financially? Have you ever experienced that? Or are you enslaved to your money? Have you ever had the great joy of viewing your work as? A, a way to serve others and found joy in blessing others, found joy in offering an excellent product and excellent quality service. Have you ever viewed your workplace as an awesome opportunity to have relationships and display the loyalty of God and the faithfulness of God and seen God reward you by living according to his biblical principles? This is the difference of the world and the people of God. It's radically different. We are not controlled by the world and the things of this world. We are not serving the God of our appetites. We do not anchor our soul in the hope of a future comfortable retirement. We do not think that we can make it through these difficult days of work if we just have enough possessions. Love not the world or the things of this world. I've been reading the life story of Truett Cathy. He's the founder of Chick-fil-A. I strongly encourage you to read his story. It is a fantastic picture of what we see here. He built the entire empire of Chick fil A, Con- contrary to everything I studied, contrary to everything the public markets would tell companies to do. That's why he's a private company because he knew that if he had stockholders he may not be able to give money away like he wanted to and like he felt God called him to. He knew that it would be about expanding as fast as you can and he would have to compromise biblical principles and in that case God rewarded him on earth perhaps for us to see that this is the blessed path of life. Maybe you are doing it and you won't see the reward until eternity but I promise you it's going to be worth it. And so, so consider your heart, consider your values, consider what you look at and what you think about when you look at possessions and money and these objects of this world. What do you think about them? Are they things that spur you on to praise God and his goodness and his glory or do they become your functional gods that become your hope, that become your love, that become your motivation, that become your appetite, that they become your God. We live in a very difficult situation. As Pallison said, we are constantly slipping into this loving the world and things of the world. And we constantly need the grace of God, the love of God, the reminder of how much God has loved you in Christ is what pulls you back out. Loving Him then allows you to properly view the world and the things of the world and to give and to, to properly respond. It, it's, it's like someone who has diabetes and they get insulin. and If they get too much, they don't realize that they are slipping into an acoma. They need someone to come and say, Hey, hey. What's going on? We need to test their blood and check their blood levels and and get them back on track. They don't realize what's going on. That's what happens to us when we're in the world, but not of the world, is we very subtly slip into loving the world and the things of the world. If it's not a daily battle, it's a moment-by-moment battle with every check of your post your facebook post or your twitter account or your snapchat or your articles that you read or the commercials that you see or the award ceremonies there's or the television sitcoms they present a completely different lifestyle that challenge everything that you see in the word of god and every day we must be vigilant to fight against the slippery slope of falling into this subtle loving the world and the things of the world why because it is doomed. God loves you too much to let you slide into that coma. What's driving you? I want to give you four questions. I came up with these. Uh, uh, these are from Pallison, but I got this together too late to put it in the study guide. But we'll post it this week uh, on, the, on the different uh, websites or you can write these questions down. These are questions that are called x-ray questions. They get into your heart to say, where am I? How am I doing? This is the blood test to check your sugar levels. Number one, and each one kind of has embedded several questions. They're kind of like the questions Jerry writes for our study guides. If you're not laughing, you're not using the study guide. There you go. Everybody's using the study guide. Number one, what do you want, desire, crave, lust, wish for, for you and for your children? What do you thirst for? What do you crave? What do you wish for, for you and for your children? That gets at the heart of your love, your God. Number two, where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, security? Where do you go for security, safety, comfort, refuge, strength, pleasure? Where do you go for that? Check that, because that's probably clawing at becoming your God. Number three, who must you please? Whose opinion of you counts so dearly? That you cannot live happily or at peace if they don't approve of you. Who must you please? Whose opinion of you counts? From whom do you desire approval and fear rejection? That may be who you've given the position of God in your life. Number four, what would make you feel rich, secure, and prosperous? What would make you feel successful and accomplished? These questions get at the root of what's in your heart. Why do you do what you do? And it's a constant struggle, a constant battle, a constant fight not to give in. And we must preach the gospel to ourselves daily. You must constantly remind, I read someone this week, I can't remember who it was, they said, uh, you are the most powerful influence in your life because you hear your voice more than anybody else's. So be sure that you are telling yourself the gospel, that God loves you unconditionally. He accepts you in Christ. In Christ, He's declared you righteous, holy, a saint. He has given you all the spiritual blessings of the, heavenly, of the heavenly places. He approves of you. He loves you like the perfect father should love you. He thinks you're great. He knows you're going to do good. He has a great plan for your life. He has an incredible future, eternal inheritance for you. You don't need this world. You've got everything you need in Christ. Amen. Preach that truth to yourself every single day so that you will love not this world or the things of this world. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your love and grace that we do not deserve. I thank you that you have poured your love out unto us through faith in Jesus Christ and that those who are in Christ have everything they need have an incredible purpose for their life an incredible plan a glorious identity and all that you have given us is for our enjoyment as we bless others serve others, glorifying you, freeing us from enslavement to those things, that we may work hard with great joy, that we may enjoy our jobs, our families, our possessions to your glory and to the good of others. Lord, teach us to love you so that we can be free to love others and have great joy in the process. Lord, we thank you for this great truth that we see in your scriptures. And we pray that your spirit will apply these truths in our heart. Literally right now, I pray both in the annex and in here that your spirit will touch our hearts. That we will sense your love, your goodness, your provision, your blessings. That it frees us from this world. That we don't need this world and things of the world to make us satisfied. It frees us to use the blessings in this world as an opportunity to find great joy in blessing others. And in the process, bringing great glory and honor to your name. The precious, glorious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.